Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts today as we study your word. Let it all be for the glory of Christ's name. Amen. In our last lesson, we focused on how we'd been separated from God by our nature. But because of grace, God has lovingly given us the gift of life in Christ. We have been saved by faith in Jesus and by his blood shed on the cross for us. Because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we've become children of God. Now, You remember that we don't work to become sons of God, rather we work because we are sons of God. God has good works for us to do simply because we're his children, but what we do is never done in our own strength, because God is the one who empowers us to do what he's called us to do. So what I want you to remember is really that it's not so much about what we're going to do for God, really It's rather about what he wants to do through us. But that being said, you and I have to cooperate with him because we do have a choice as to how courageous we're going to be and as to how much we're going to risk for his kingdom as we step out in his name. What we do in service, though, does not ever affect our salvation. It affects our reward, though, when we finally stand before his throne. And we know this because of what Paul said to the church at Corinth. Now, the whole passage is in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. Um, But speaking of the work that we do as God's people, Paul uses a picture of a building and how everything that is done is built on the foundation of Christ alone. He says this in verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burnt up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So originally in this passage of scripture, Paul had been speaking about teachers who were building up the body of Christ. But really what he said can apply to all of us as we work for God. You see, Christ is the only foundation, but each one of us can choose how we will build on that foundation. Whether we're willing to invest much or whether we're only willing to invest a little in kingdom things. Whatever the case, the day of judgment will bring everything to light because on that day, the quality of each person's work will be tested and it will show those who have fully invested and those who have not fully invested. So if you've built with gold, silver and costly stones, things that cost a lot, that are valuable, 
what you have built will survive and there is reward attached to that. But for those who build with only wood, hay or straw, that things that don't cost them anything, what they've built will not survive and they will suffer loss of reward. But I want you to notice in 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says that they will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So what we do for God's kingdom doesn't affect our salvation, but how we serve God once we're saved does affect our reward. Before we move on, though, I just want to say that this really has nothing to do with the size of our financial contributions only, because it really is all about our hearts. You can't forget that the widow's two small copper coins in Mark 12 were worth far more to God than all of the larger amounts that were given, because this is all about our hearts and the hidden things that we do for God's kingdom. What those things are, are going to differ from person to person. So if you're wondering what it looks like to build with gold, silver and costly stones, ask God to show you what it means for you personally. Now, before we look at our text for this lesson, there is one thing that will be helpful for us to know. In the Old Testament worship, there were many barriers of exclusion in the temple. There were many different courts that as you moved toward the presence of God. His presence dwelt in a place called the Holy of Holies at the very heart of the temple. And a heavy curtain known as the veil kept everyone out of there except for the high priest who was allowed to go inside only once a year and always with the blood of a sacrifice. Now, as you went further out from God's presence on the other side of the veil, there was a room called the holy place where only certain priests were allowed to go every now and then. The next court was the court of the priests where the sacrifices were offered. The court further beyond that was the court of the Israelites where Jewish men could worship. And then going out still further was the court of the women where the Jewish people, including the women, could gather. And then finally, if you went out even past that, you'd find the court of the Gentiles, which was the place for foreigners who came seeking the Lord. Now this court was separated from all of the rest by a, a wall that was marked with a promise that any Gentile who crossed that barrier would immediately be put to death. So the Gentiles really were totally excluded from the presence of God and from his people. And it'll help you to remember that as we look at our text. We're picking it up in Ephesians 2 verse Verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Most of those in Ephesus had been Gentiles before they accepted Christ, and to be a Gentile meant that you really were a stranger to God's promises. You weren't one of his people, you were alienated from him. In fact, even at the time of Paul, some of the Jewish Christians still looked down on those who followed Christ but who'd come out of a Gentile background. Many Jewish believers thought that because of their circumcision, they were somehow closer to God and better than the rest. But in reality, both Jew and Gentile alike needed God's grace, for both had really been excluded from God's intimate presence. And both groups were in desperate need of a saviour. I mean, think about it. In temple terms, Gentiles had been far off from God in that outer court. They'd really been separated from him, but now they were in Christ, all that had changed, for they'd been brought near to God by the blood of the Lamb. Paul actually says in Ephesians 2.13 that in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice how Paul emphasizes the blood of Christ, though. Why didn't he just say that we'd been brought near by the death of Christ? Why emphasize the blood? Well, it's because of what we're told in Hebrews 9.22. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. From the very beginning, blood sacrifice had been necessary for mankind to enter into God's presence. In the temple, God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, were excluded from that place because only the high priest could enter there once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he was never allowed to go in without the blood of a perfect sacrifice. There was also that thick curtain known as the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And Josephus, who was a historian of the first century, tells us that the veil was four inches thick and it was impossible for a man to tear. It really was a symbol of the fact that God was separated from men and mankind was unable to freely enter into his presence. But If you remember in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, we're told that that same veil was torn in two at the death of Christ. And not only that, but both Matthew and Mark specifically report that the veil was torn from top to bottom. In other words, that curtain was not torn by mankind, but rather by an act of God. Christ's blood paid our debt, Jew and Gentile alike, and opened the way into God's presence for all who've asked to be identified with his sacrifice. So all who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's made atonement for all of us. And that word atone really means that we are now at one with God. And Jesus, he's broken down the barriers, not only between God and man, but what we understand from this passage in Ephesians is that Jesus has also broken down the barriers that separated God's people from each other, based on their status, on their gender, and on their race. 
specifically stressing the unity of Christians irrespective of whether they were Jews or Gentiles, Paul goes on to state in verse 14, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Let's break it down. I think that the world today, there is so much division in it. Everyone seems to be seeking peace, but peace is really elusive. And the truth is that there is no peace without Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, he and no other, is peace. Those who have accepted him are not only reconciled with God the Father, but they're also reconciled with one another also. He's the one who's broken down the walls of separation between Jew and Gentile, male and female and the like. In his sacrifice, he brought an end to the enmity that once stood between us. And according to verse 15, Jesus has done this by abolishing the very thing that separated Jews from Gentiles in the first place. Do you see in the text, he abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 that in Christ, God cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So what part of the law of God did Christ's death effectively cancel? Well, for us to understand that, we need to realize that the law was divided up into two different sections. There was the moral law, which says that we should love God with our heart and mind and strength, and that we're to love one another. Christ didn't make that part of the law ineffective, but in addition to that, there was also the law of the religious rituals. Or, as it is stated there in verse 15, the law that dealt with the ordinances. The Greek word in the text for ordinances is dogma, meaning the religious doctrines. These were the systems practiced by the Jews that really dealt with the sacrifices and how God was to be approached and, and who could approach him. This part of the law applied to things such as sacrifices and the ceremonial washings and so on. Much of it symbolized what would fully be accomplished by Christ's death on the cross. And so that was the part of the law that Christ came to fulfill. We are still to love God and we're still to love one another. We're still to obey the moral law, but it is by grace we're saved. In Christ, all of those old religious practices that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, they have all been ended and the two different groups have been made one in Christ. Those who've accepted Jesus as our Savior are no longer Jew or Gentile. We are Christian. Our identity has changed. Do you see there in verse 15, 
18, it states that Christ did what he did to create in himself one new man from the two. The word for create in the text is kitizo, meaning to create or make something from nothing, something that's never been heard of before. And so what is this remarkable thing that has been made? It is reconciliation, peace with God, and peace with one another. But where are these two different groups made one, according to verse 15? It's in himself. It's in Christ alone. Do you see how Ephesians 2.16 there states that Jesus' work was to reconcile them both to God. You see, Jew and Gentile both need his atoning blood in order to be in a right relationship with God the Father. Those in Ephesus, irrespective of their backgrounds, had been reconciled to God through the cross. And on that basis, all of their differences fell away. Christ's sacrifice brought us peace not only with the Father vertically, but peace with one another horizontally. And if you think about that, it really creates a picture of the cross itself. I saw this truth evidenced quite recently. You see, every year I do a Passover dinner teaching and I show how Christ is revealed in all of it. Now, one year a Jewish man came to introduce himself to me afterwards and he thanked me for honoring his culture he didn't know Jesus yet, but he told me that he'd never heard some of the things that he heard that night. He seemed really touched, and to be honest with you, so was I, because I knew who'd invited him to the study. He'd come at the invitation of a man who knew him from his business. The amazing thing is that the man who invited the Jewish man to attend was a Muslim previously who had been born in the Middle East, but he had since come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it brought tears to my eyes because in this reality of him inviting the Jewish man to the study, I realized I was seeing the beginnings of Ephesians 2.14 being worked out in their relationship. For Jesus Christ himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. In verse 17, once again drawing from the picture of the different courts in the temple, Paul says to them, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You see, the Gentiles were definitely those who were far off. But the Jews who were near also had no real access to God in their own strength. Both groups needed to be brought to peace with him by the work of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, it had to affect how they lived out their lives with one another. Jesus is the only one who is able to reconcile people who were previously enemies. And that doesn't just apply to those who come out of Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. It applies to those of us from different tribes and different races also. Our shared experience of the Holy Spirit is what makes us one family, despite where we came from. 
In verse 19, Paul speaks of our connectedness. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul says that because of the blood of Christ, no matter where we came from, in Christ we're no longer strangers or foreigners to God's family. Both strangers and foreigners are outsiders, aren't they? But that's no longer true for those of us who have trusted Christ, because we're now citizens of God's kingdom. Finally, we have a place to belong. Why? Because we're accepted in the Beloved. Paul then begins to speak to God's people as if they were a building. He says that everything has been built on the solid foundation that has Christ as its cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is really an interesting thing because usually it's a stone laid at the corner to connect two different walls that are running in different directions. And really, that's a picture of what Jesus had done by connecting the Jews and the non-Jews together to be a holy temple to the Lord because one had been going in one direction, the other in another, but Jesus was the one that connected them all. But what I want you to notice is Paul's not just talking about any cornerstone here. He's really talking about the chief cornerstone. Now, when a chief cornerstone is laid in a building, all of the other measurements, all of the rest of the structure depends on that stone. The chief cornerstone is really the anchor stone for the entire building. And it's interesting that Paul would say that as Christ followers, those who anchored themselves to him were being built into this holy temple in the Lord. The temple, of course, was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth in the past. And so what Paul is telling us here that really now it is in his people that God dwells on earth and he lives in us by his spirit within us. Going on into chapter 3, we realize that this remarkable message of inclusion for the Gentiles was really the mystery that God had revealed to Paul. And we're going to be dealing with that in our next lesson when we look at the section in more detail. But for now, all I'm interested in really is in verse 1 of chapter 3, because there Paul begins by saying, for this reason. Now, he starts to say something at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1 that he only gets back to finish in verse 14. So it's there you'll see that Paul's going to use these words again for this reason, but in verse 14 he'll go on to say, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So everything between verse 1 and verse 14 really is an explanation, and all of that's going to make more sense when we get to it next week. But if you do have a Bible, why don't you link Ephesians 3 verse 1 with verse 14, 
where Paul is going to finish the thought he starts. But in verse 1, Paul says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. When Paul was writing this, he was under arrest in Rome. He was waiting trial by Caesar. And at this point, he was chained to a Roman guard every hour of the day. And you'll remember I said he shared his faith in Christ with them, and many of his guards came to faith also. But do you notice here that Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ? And that really touches my heart because Paul doesn't see himself as being a prisoner of Rome. He knows his life is directed by God and that he can trust the Lord in all things. Christ has a purpose for Paul, even there under arrest. And that wasn't some sort of fatalism on Paul's part. He knew that he was on a mission and his joy was really intertwined with fulfilling the purposes that God had for him. Do you remember when he spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? It's in verse 22 through 24 on his way to Jerusalem. He said to them that even though prison and hardship awaited him, none of that mattered as long as he could finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus had given him to do. And I think that that's really a challenge for you and I, isn't it? To be so yielded to Christ that we see our lives in a similar way. The truth is, how we view something really determines how we get through something. I always used to say to my children, attitude is everything. Now, we may not be in the same kind of prison as Paul was, but the same principle applies. We can see our own hardships either as a punishment that makes us question the goodness of God, or we can see them as a privilege that God has some sort of purpose in. My life verse is Philippians 1.12, where Paul said, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I want what happens to me to advance God's kingdom. And I can tell you how you view what happens to you will directly determine how God can use you because of it. Paul knew that he was there in Rome at Christ's command, and his joy was tied to him completing the mission that he'd been given. And he knew the only way he could be successful was through the power of God at work in him and through him. And that's where we'll begin our lesson next time. You won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are the one who guides the paths of our lives. Lord, help us to trust you and to seek you in every circumstance, to see how we can use those things that come our way for the advancement of the gospel. Lord, let it all be to Christ's glorious name and his praise alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.